Last time we were together, we were talking about Christ warning about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and really calling them out for their hypocrisy, their lies, their deception, and he just continues on. We're gonna, that's where we're at today is Jesus, the, the, the things Jesus is saying about the religious leaders. A lot of people grew up being taught that the worst thing you could do is to call out a spiritual leader. That to do so would be really close to blasphemy, that even if the religious leader was doing wrong, to call out their wrong would be to put yourself in harm's way. That you should expect God's curse upon your life and um, don't be shocked when everything falls apart. I've known people, I am related to people who have come from that type of thinking, who still struggle with that idea of confronting a spiritual leader on their sin, on their bad choices. I, I love being a Baptist. I'm a Baptist for good reason. I believe that the doctrine, the theology of a Baptist is in line with Scripture for the most part as far as theology. Yes, philosophy, it wavers back and forth depending on the Baptist you're talking to. But for the most part, I, I, I appreciate the theology and the philosophy of a Baptist. But I got to tell you, one thing we do not have right is the elevation of our spiritual leaders. This idea that because a man is a pastor, they can't do wrong. Or if they have done wrong, there's a good reason for it. We have to accept it. And even if there's not a good reason, we have no right to say so. This belief system that a leader in the church or the wife of a leader in the church is someone that is slightly above humanity. The belief, the philosophy... The application of the fact, well, at least claimed by many leaders, that you cannot mess with God's man. What a shame that we would elevate our leaders to that point. That we would believe that because they are serving God's church, they are better than everyone else. That's not how it works. The Bible, Jesus Christ actually tells us that if you want to be great, then be less if you want to be first, then be last. If you want to serve, then do so humbly, not pridefully. Don't control, don't lord over the people, but love them like Christ loves them. There is good reason to evaluate the actions of a leader. The best reason is, if you don't, you're likely to follow the wrong leader towards destruction. A second good reason is, if you don't follow them towards destruction, someone else might. It is our responsibility as followers of Christ to make sure that the men and women who claim to be leading us towards Christ are indeed leading us towards Christ. That these men and women who claim to lead us towards Christ are themselves following Christ. You say, Pastor Ross, how can we know if they're following Christ? We can't see their heart. No, you can't. You know what Christ said about that? He said, you can't see their heart, so judge them by their fruit. Did you know that verse where Christ says you'll know them by their fruit is not referring to leaders knowing Christians? It is Christians judging the leaders. Christ warns his church, his followers, before the church even started, he was giving them warning saying, make sure you judge your leaders based off of their actions, based off of their fruit. And if you don't see their fruit or actions reflect, reflecting God, reflecting Christ, then don't follow them. 
So in the rest of this chapter, Jesus Christ tears into the religious leaders, calling them out for their hypocrisy, calling them out for their uh, outright wickedness. So let's start now in verse 13. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. He's saying your teaching, your theology, literally turns people away from heaven rather than to heaven. How can that be? Are they not teaching about God? I'm sure they're teaching about God, but what they're teaching about God isn't godly. And the way they're living out their teaching isn't godly. So when people see the Pharisees, they're not turning to God. They're turning to something altogether different. The name God is used, but it's not the God of the Bible. And then others who are seeking God say, well, the Pharisees surely aren't living out what I'm seeking. And so they must not have the answer. So they walk away from all Scripture because, in their opinion, the Pharisees have it wrong. The whole Bible has it wrong. What they don't understand is the Bible is true whether or not people misapply it. So Christ's first statement here, verse 13, your teaching turns people away from heaven, not towards. What a sad statement to make. And what a sad truth that today there's still a lot of men and women who are teaching on, online, uh, YouTube, on, on social media, on television, on radio, in churches, a lot of men and women who are teaching, and their teaching is not turning people to God. It's turning people away from God. You say again, well, Pastor Russ, how can we know if their teaching is turning us towards God or away from God? Do not look at the Bible through their teaching. Look at their teaching through the Bible. Know the Bible well enough, at least on a basic level, to ask yourself, does their teaching reflect the Bible? If you don't know the Bible, it's hard to answer that question. Verse 14, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses. For a pretense, make long prayer. Therefore, you shall receive the greater damnation. Instead of serving the downtrodden, serving the innocent, serving the hurting, they are hurting the hurting, taking advantage of the downtrodden, stealing from those who cannot help themselves. Widows whose husbands have passed, they don't have a way of income. How is it that they devour widows' houses? Christ doesn't tell us, but I'll tell you what I think might be happening. These widows are relying on the religious community, and the religious community is saying, we've got you. Why don't you sign your house over to us, and we'll take care of you. When he says devoured their houses, to me, that seems a pretty strong statement of taking something from them. And he says houses, so I think we know what they're taking. So how these religious leaders justify taking their houses and how they convince these widows to give them their houses, I don't know. Christ doesn't go into that detail. But it seems that this church is taking advantage of the innocence, the naivety of these widows taking their stuff. Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. These Pharisees were missionaries, missions-minded. They would travel long distances to give their version of truth. These Pharisees were not waiting for people to come to them. They were seeking people out to convert them. But Christ says, when you convert them, you're not converting them to heaven. We already saw in verse 13, you're not turning them to God. You're turning them away from God. And so these Pharisees, when they have a, con a convert, 
whatever truth they're giving them is causing them to be twice as deceived and twice as wicked as the Pharisees themselves. Verse 16, Woe unto you, blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. Goes on to talk about swearing by the altar, not a big deal, but swearing by the gift is a big deal. Christ is saying, You're blind to the truth, you're blind to what's actually important. If you look at the context, he's saying you're blind, then he goes on to explain why they're blind. These Pharisees had messed up priorities. They thought that the stuff inside the temple was more important than the temple itself. Now, at that time, we're not talking about a church building. We're talking about a temple that God had sanctified on earth to recognize or to, to illustrate him. We're not talking about um, sacrifices in the church where your tithes and offerings. We're talking about, at that time, an altar that was sanctified by God. And these Pharisees knew so little about Scripture, the truth of Scripture, that they had it completely backwards as far as what was actually important. They said, the gold is more important than the place. The gift was more important than the altar. It's hard to compare that today because our church building isn't a temple and our stage isn't an altar. But I will say this, a lot of church leaders still blind today, teaching from a point of blindness, not understanding the priorities of God's heart. A lot of preachers, I think, like the Pharisees, the goal was more important than the temple. Well, what's the temple now? We are the temple. For a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers, the money, the tithe, is more important than the temple, the temples in the church. That they will diminish, destroy, demean the temples in the church to get more money from them. Bully, whatever they needed to do. Their priorities are off. We need to see people through God's heart, not our own. Money is of little importance to God. It is the temple in the Old Testament, and today, New Testament, us, his temple. Verse 20. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. What does that mean? These things meant anise cumin. Basically, the Pharisees were such sticklers for tithing, they would tithe off of even the most minute things in their house. If they had just a little bit of mint, they'd bring some of it into the temple and say, I'm such a great follower of God, I'm even tithing off of the things that you don't normally tithe off of. For example, it is taught in a lot of churches that you should tithe 10% off of your, your weekly, biweekly, or monthly income. Now, I've stated as a pastor, that's actually not a command in the New Testament. The command in the New Testament is that we should give with a cheerful heart. Whatever we give is between us and God. There's not an actual certain amount. To be quite honest with you, I feel like if there was a certain amount, it'd be more than 10%, not less. But the Bible doesn't give us an amount. So whatever we give is between us and God because we want to give. 
But there are some Christians who say, you know what? I don't just give out of my payroll. If someone gives me a birthday check, I tithe off of that. If I find a $5 bill on the ground, I'm going to drop 50%, 50 cents in the offering plate. That's what we're talking about here, tithing off of the mint and the, and the herbs, the small herbs. Like Most Jews are like, what are you doing, man? It's just small herbs. You don't have to bring like a little baggie of 10% of your herbs into the temple. What am I supposed to do with this? It wasn't for practicality. It was to impress people. I'm bringing my little baggie, 10% amount of my herbs into the temple and dropping that off. And Christ said, you are, you are so intent on following the letter of the law you created, and yet you're missing the big picture. And what is the big picture? The law, weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Now let's start with the weightier matters of the law. What does that mean? Not all of God's expectations are on an equal playing field. Wow, that's a mind blower right there, isn't it? Do you ever consider that? Well, isn't all of God's word equal? Well, God's word is all equally true. God's word is all equally inspired. But there is definitely a difference between the Old Testament uh, command of not eating bacon and the entire Old and New Testament command of being just through faith. They're not the same. If they were the same, then salvation would be why it works. Obviously, when you consider it logically, not all the scripture is equal in its importance to our lives. All the scripture is equally God's word, but not all of God's word is as life-changing as other parts of God's word. Not all of God's law is as life-changing as other parts of God's law. Is keeping the commandment of thou shalt not murder as important as keeping the commandment of don't eat shrimp. So, Christ says, you're so concerned about the small things that people don't even care about that I didn't even mention in the Old Testament weren't necessary. You're creating these things. And yet, the big deals of the law, the really big ones, like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, like thou shalt not murder, like thou shalt not steal, you're stealing from the widows. You love yourself, and you're murdering each other through the way you talk and act to each other. He deals with that in another passage, Matthew chapter 5. You curse each other. And you might as well have killed them because you killed them in your heart. Then we go on to judgment. Judgment is the just application of truth. Making the right decision. The right call on those who've made a mistake recognizing when someone is guilty, recognizing when someone is innocent, and making the right choice with that recognition. The Pharisees couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. They didn't have discretion. They didn't have wisdom. They called the innocent guilty and the guilty innocent. They themselves were guilty and failed to see it. And then mercy. The constant application of forgiveness towards those who have wronged you. Constant, daily application of forgiveness. And he says, here you are bringing 10% of your small bag of herbs in. And what I really care about is mercy, which you are not showing. And then the last, faith. Faith in Christ, faith in God, faith in his word. The Pharisees had faith, but I think their faith was in themselves, a form of self-righteousness. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, 
would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. What does that mean? You're so hyper-focused on small things that don't matter. You are missing the massive camel in the room that is destroying your house. Here you are chasing a gnat around in the kitchen while the camel is destroying your dishes. Here you are opening the window trying to get the gnat out while the camel's sleeping on your couch. You're ignoring the big deal and making a big deal out of small things. And if that doesn't describe so many churches and Christians, then you haven't been around. Because a lot of churches, a lot of leaders, a lot of Christians, that is exactly what's going on. Look at us. We tithe everything. Look at us. We're wearing the clothing that, you know, should be expected. Whose expectation? Well, ours. We created the expectation. Now we expect you to follow the expectation. Look at us doing that. These are the things that matter, they say. And yet, the big deals, the family's falling apart, the marriage is falling apart, the worship service, which is not a worship service, it's just a bunch of people making noise, the big deals, they're ignored. Everyone puts a smile on their face, pretends that everything's okay, because don't pretend, if you, if you state the truth that everything is not okay, you will be attacked. Well, if you're not okay, that must have meant you sin, because only bad things happen to bad people, as Job's friends said. As the apostles themselves believed when they saw the blind man and said, who sinned, him or his parents? So you don't want to be in a church who believes that because the moment you admit the reality of life, everyone thinks you're a horrible person. You don't get help, you get hurt. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat, swallow a camel. Why is Christ giving us all of these details? Christ is warning us about the kind of leaders that will destroy us. You are not in the wrong when you recognize these problems. You are in the wrong when you ignore them. You are not in the wrong when you call out these problems and you call out a leader as Christ did with these problems. You are in the wrong when you enable that leader to continue being this kind of controlling Selfish, prideful, unbiblical, OCD on the wrong things kind of leader. Verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup, of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. He says, you have these... Nice-looking dishes. You've got these things that look really good on the outside, but on the inside, it's just a mess. You only care how something looks to others. You don't actually care what it is, what's inside, what's going on. And we're right back to what I said earlier. So many Christians, so many churches, that is exactly what's happening. If they look good Sunday morning, check the box, move on with your life, Nothing needs to change. But inside, everything's falling apart. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. It's like someone doing the dishes, and they only clean the outside of the cup and not the inside. It's full of extortion and excess. That basically is talking about dirt and chaos and grime and muck. That's what it's saying. 
your cups, your bowls. You're not cleaning the inside of them, and you keep eating out of dirty bowls. But the outside sure looks shiny. Sitting on the shelf, someone says, oh, that's a clean bowl. They get it only to look inside, and there's dried up, crusty gunk on the inside. Do you have another bowl? Oh, they're all like that. Take your pick. That is what the Pharisees are offering to their followers. It looks good on the outside, but nothing is being done to fix the inside. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. A sepulcher is a form of a grave, a, a grave or like, like a, a tomb of some type that's encased uh, the, the bones and the, the, the rotting flesh of the, of the carcass of the corpses inside. On the outside, it looks nice, but people don't open it up on the inside. They know what's on the inside. It's smelly, and it's a rotting corpse. Well, like the cup scenario where the outside's clean and the inside's nasty, so we have the sepulcher. The outside is kept clean, but the inside still has rotting carcasses. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. How is it that someone can appear righteous to crowds of people when they're full of hypocrisy? I do believe in the human condition we are obviously capable of being deceived. I know that. I've been deceived. I get it. I believe, though, that deception is happening at a much longer, over a longer period of time than it should because people don't want to see the truth about their leaders. They don't want to see the truth or, or perceive that something could be off about their leader. Only after everything blows up, only after their pastor's in the newspaper, only after their pastor's behind bars, only after the pastor's left and the church is split, do the people say, how did we miss it? Why didn't we see that? Oh, we did see it. We just didn't know what we were looking at. No, you didn't want to know what you're looking at. When the pastor's behind the pulpit screaming, calling people's names out, you didn't want to see that the man was abusive. When the pastor is dragging kids by their arm, his or someone else's, across the sanctuary and saying, how dare you run in here, you didn't want to see what you were looking at. When the pastor is confronted and responds in pride and anger and says, how dare you call out the man of God, you didn't want to see what you were looking at. When the pastor gets up, opens the Bible, but doesn't preach from it, just tells a bunch of stories that don't really mean anything, you didn't want to see what you were looking at. Deception can happen to anyone. We can all be deceived. But the amount of deception and the length of deception, that's up to you. When you refuse to open your eyes and see what is happening, you are allowing the deception to play out longer than it naturally would have otherwise. And Christ is challenging us to not be deceived by these hypocrites. Who are these hypocrites? I have no one in mind. I'm not thinking of any names or churches or pastors. I'm just talking about leaders who say one thing to look good to you but are not who they claim to be. They can fool you for a while, but eventually 
the fruit will come out. And at that point, you have to decide. Are you going to recognize the fruit for what it is? Or are you going to pretend the fruit tastes good when it's rotten in your mouth? Are you going to think you're the problem? Oh, this fruit actually is good. My taste buds must be off. Look at it. It's brown. It's falling apart. Oh, my eyes aren't what they used to be. There's a worm in there. Oh, it's for protein. Like, you can make all the excuses you want about the leader. Stop making excuses. Taste the fruit and ask yourself, is this fruit actually of God? Verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of prophets, garnish the sepulchers of the righteous And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. (laughs) You know, that's a common phrase even today. Oh, if we had lived back in the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, 1400s, we would not have done what our ancestors did. In in reference to slavery, in reference to religious persecution, in in reference to anything that you didn't like, oh, we would have done differently if we lived back then. Oh, you can claim whatever you want about what you might have done 200 years ago. Christ says, you know what? Let's not talk about what you have done, let's, what you would have done. Let's talk about what you are doing. Verse 31, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? I send unto you prophets, wise men, scribes, Some of them you shall kill and crucify. Some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. He says, as far as I'm concerned, you are one and the same with your ancestors. These guys didn't kill Zacharias. That was hundreds of years before this. These guys didn't kill Abel, obviously. But he's saying, you are just like them, and it will be proven that in this generation, you will do the same things your ancestors did. The world says, oh, we would have been so different. We would have stood, we would have stood up for righteousness and, and justice. We would have helped the innocent and the downtrodden and yet, what, are the, what do you see the world doing? Agree with us or pretty nasty things. Agree with us or you're a bigot. Agree with us or you don't deserve to live. <laughs> the current generation has the opportunity to show us who they really are. Talking about yourself in comparison to people who've been dead hundreds of years ago isn't the way to do it. What opportunities do we have today to show who we are, and what are we doing with those opportunities. Stop talking all day about what you would have done 500 years ago. Show me what you're going to do today. And then verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus is about to die. He's not talking about today you'll never see me again. He's saying after the events that are unfolding that are going to happen within the next you know, very short time, 
after the events that are going to unfold, you won't see me again, return to Jerusalem, until the second coming. And then you'll see me and rejoice at my return. Verse 37 is a great verse when it comes to understanding theology as a whole. I've spoken many times when it comes up about Reformed theology, the belief that God chooses some to hell. And if God has chosen you to hell, you're going to go to hell. Reformed theology believes if God has chosen you to heaven, you're going to heaven. You can't say no. And yet that's exactly what I see in verse 37. Christ says to Jerusalem, I would have gathered you, but you would not. It is obvious. You can't look at this verse, in my opinion, any other way than that Jerusalem chose to reject God. After Christ says, I would have accepted you. I wanted to accept you. I tried to accept you. You wouldn't accept me. I do believe that salvation is offered to us because God is gracious. God is loving. God is good. We are given the opportunity for salvation because God, not because of us. I believe God offers salvation to all. All of humanity is given the opportunity for salvation. But giving the opportunity doesn't mean we take it. Once God offers it, we now can be, verse 37, reject it like Jerusalem did, or we can accept it. But the offer is to all. We're going to end there tonight. I'm going to have a conversation with those in the building about uh, chapter 23. Hope to see you online next week if you can join us again as we continue this series on the life of Christ. Have a good night.